0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Today on A Taste of the Past, we'll meet the man with the name that is synonymous with fine cognac. And then author Kara Newman will join us to talk about her new book, Shake, stir, and sip. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today is a special day. It's all about drinks. About we don't usually do the alcoholic side of culinary history, but well now I have to say I did do a show on Armagnac. So we're in good company here today. I have with me a very special guest, and he is Maurice Hennessy. And you will recognize the name hennessy i'm sure right unless you're living under a rock somewhere (laughs) um maurice is the global brand ambassador for yes indeed hennessy cognac the name the the name in cognac he is the eighth generation family member and he certainly has a lot to say about that. He was actually even born on the property, or in the area where, where the cognac is from. I'm going to ask him. Welcome,
3: Maurice. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
2: So you are you were were raised in the in the area. Now I know that the you tell me the background, but um, I will just get there first. And that is, that Your great great grandfather founded the company.
3: Well, yes. Very, very great. Um, eight generation ago, it was oh, in 17… 17... Oh, that's right. Eight grades ago. <laughs> <laughs> eight grades ago, yes. Um, seven, yeah. It was uh, in 1765. Uh, Richard Hennessy started the firm. He was an Irish gentleman who joined the Irish Brigade of the King of France. And after a few uh, uh, years in the army, he start, got a French passport and started a firm.
2: Wow, so an Irishman in France. What do you do? You make quite a few of them. Quite a few of them. Yeah. And so this is 1765. When was the actual first commercial cognac made?
3: I mean, for sale.
2: You know. Well,
3: it was. He started doing that. Really, he started being a sort of shipper of uh, the good cognac which his friends in Ireland or in England would order uh, because he lived in cognac and uh, he went to see a few distillers which he knew and uh, choose some cognac which would but you know some of course it was all the shipment was in barrels the bottling itself started in the 1830s.
2: Wow, a barrel of Hennessy XO. What would that
3: go for today? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we didn't have Hennessy XO. That started in 1870. But I mean, a barrel of cognac, yes, would be a lot of money, but that was the way people did in those times. uh, A retailer would buy a barrel, and then you arrive with your decanter, and you fill up your decanter if you were a consumer.
2: Mm -hmm. All right, so let's... We have a lot of things to explain here. Number one, he lived in cognac. So, what what differentiates cognac from other brandies other same and what is and what is the distillation process that makes it a
3: cognac? wow that's uh, yeah, uh, a whole, the well, whole ball of wax <laughs> okay brandy means spirit in europe it must be made of fruit uh, outside europe it can be made of anything uh, sugar cane uh, uh, grain uh sugar beet or whatever which are distilled Uh, usually industrially often made out of uh, agricultural excesses uh, whatever Uh, cognac is the only spirit which has uh, which is made in one geographical um, village or surrounding of a village area (coughs) We have Armagnac too, but I mean, cognac is, has even more precise description of his distillation, which must be a double distillation in uh, old-fashioned copper stills. Each distillation takes twelve hours, etc. Um, and it has to be the distillation of a white wine, which is specially made out of grapes which are grown in the region of the town of Cognac in southwest France. So there's a lot of specificities. Cognac is really an appellation contrôlée. Um, you have, it starts from the area where it's made, it's, it starts from the varietals of grapes, the way the wine is made, the way the wine is distilled, the way the wine... the spirit is aged in French oak barrels for many, many years where brandy is really often the the distillation of really things which are let's say that it's a bit like uh, if you make a wine in the rest of the world you make a wine to be as a good wine <clears throat> not to be distilled but if there are some parts of the wine which are not to your taste or which are over the limit or whatever then you can distill it it doesn't really make a great product, but at least that's what we believe. A cognac is the only wine growing area which grows a vine to make a spirit Let's put it like that oh. so it starts from the plant
2: so and and to be called a cognac, it must come from this that area region, right?
3: and that region, and as I say, the double distillation et cetera et cetera
2: and in that within that region are there or that with the area of cognac are there Different regions that different. Yes,
3: producers... so the the region of cognac contains about uh, seventy four thousand hectares, which is like two hundred thousand acres of white vineyard, grown by about forty five hundred farmers, of which I'm one of them, and Hennessy purchases from seventeen hundred of them. Uh, it's cognac. Uh, because Hennessy is not a huge distillery, which makes uh, industrial like vodka. Uh, Hennessy selects from the growers what it prefers and ages it uh, into its warehouses where we have... uh, So we have a large large variety of uh, cognacs. They come... The region is divided into six growth areas known as Grande Champagne, Petite Champagne, Bordry, Fabois Bonbois, Bordiner. Um, so that that depends on the nature of the soil, depends on the microclimate, etc.
2: So, can you describe for us geographically where this region is? Let's in terms, in terms of course, Paris, right?
3: Uh, from Paris, it's let's say two hours and a half by fast train. Uh, southwest France, it's about one hour and a half drive from Bordeaux. Uh, so it's a little southwest,
2: southwest of France. southwest of, yes, of southwest France. France. Yeah, yes. yeah,
3: interesting. Charming little town. I mean, mm, I'm it's sure. It's very, really, very provincial. It's uh, well, visited by people fascinated by the cognac industry, but it's uh, it can also be visited by people who like the light, which is beautiful. Uh, the Romanesque uh, churches. The there we are. <laughs>
2: So did you know from an early age that this was going to be
3: your life? <laughs> oh, no, because when I was, my father was a nuclear scientist, so he was more interested in quantum physics than uh, <laughs> uh, vineyard. Uh, it's really, and, and he really strongly recommended me that I should do something else like uh, why, um <clears throat> Farming, because that's what I liked. In fact, it's farming, uh, growing animals, uh, having cattle. That was really I well.
2: Was, and you went and studied. You studied. I studied farming, saw correctly, and
3: right. uh, then, well, okay, I did an internship in a distributing uh, company, a distributor in Paris, because uh, that was also part of my curriculum. And then I discovered that, in fact, the job of being in the cognac business was fascinating, and that's how I fell in love with it, and I'm still there 40 years later.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, let me ask, I know that um, certainly the company and the brand has been bought by larger luxury brands. Uh,
3: well, and, uh, no, uh, the company and the brand started larger group. With Moët et Chandon, we created Moët Hennessy, and with Louis Vuitton, we created LVMH. Uh, um, yeah, okay. We were not really taken over. We've been taking okay. over since a little that bit, was, but I mean...
2: Yeah, that was a little misleading in some yes, of the yeah, in some yes, of the information. No, we built I'm something saying. more yeah. than
3: uh, oh. being... Uh, uh,
2: and has that has the, the company and the production of, of the cognac been in the Hennessy family continuously? Oh, or has well, it been in continuous production, I guess, is also what I wanted to
3: know. Uh, well, yes. I mean, we have been producing... Uh, with the help of the Filou family, who are the blenders at Hennessy for seven generations, we've been producing cognac non-stop. Of course, we had periods which were more difficult, uh, when, for example, the phylloxera, which destroyed the vineyard uh, in, the, in France, in this uh, <clears throat> created a strong rarity of the cognacs. Of course, in the 1870s life wasn't so easy but I mean we still, there were some vineyards there was some cognac, we had a lot large stock and we thought of the replantation, we studied everything and we were with other brands, other families the base of the replantation of phylloxera proof uh, plants but of course there was a time where the Germans were in cognac and of course we couldn't do a lot but I mean we did still a little bit uh the firm made sure that there was always some work for its workers, and uh, even uh, during the war when there was not a lot of customers, not a lot of thing to ship, then they were packing for the Red cross but I mean, let's say that there was never a time where we stopped no
2: interesting that's that's a long history yes, <laughs> very yes, long history yes, yes. um so tell me about the the different um, designations and the types, and when, of course, the, the Primo uh, distillation, the Exo, was, was uh, started?
3: Um, well, the, the cognac, as it was when it was invented, uh, when it was called brandy, which is a Dutch word which means burnt wine, uh, was really made to be mixed with water and to be served instead of wine. Uh, in those times, people were traveling by boat, you're about the 17th century, and the Dutch <clears throat> mainly were the biggest travelers, they had large shipping company, and they were, using, they were buying a lot of wine from us, from cognac, uh, and distilling it in Amsterdam and calling that brandy. Uh-huh and that's where the word brandy comes from Just did a show on Dutch influences there there we are. It's, a, it's amazing and Forgot um, about the brandy part And it's really, they were storing these barrels in the bottom of the ship where it was doing its aging in, at sea and when they wanted to drink they were just taking some of the, con- the brandy, it wasn't really cognac then, and mixing it with water and it was making a palatable drink which we call Hennessy soda now but it's, <laughs> uh, it was the same thing <laughs> Uh, then with the evolution of the time, etc., was felt it would be more interesting to distill in cognac uh, the wine. And then, of course, we uh, improved the distillation, all that. Now, the, so at the beginning, Hennessy really was selling cognac, which you would call Hennessy VS now, younger, uh, consumed uh, a lot. But I mean, often like that with water. Um, then in the 1830 or 20, we uh, created a VSOP. Uh, it's a special cognac which was aged only in old barrel, which was not so influenced by the tannin of the wood. <clears throat> Light cognac, very smooth, which we still make. In 1870, my ancestor, Morris Hennessy I, Uh, decided that he wanted a cognac made out of the old stock which we had in the cellars which he felt uh, was very good that should be used Uh, so it was a cognac for him for his dining room, for his friends it wasn't for sale Uh, but it was so successful that after all he was a businessman and he says, okay let's sell it so they had to create a name and they called it EXO simply because it was extra old Hennessy created EXO, the word EXO, which has been copied and used by hundreds of other brands now and even other firms and even a Chinese sauce. Chinese sauce, right. But uh, (laughs) the EXO was Hennessy. Since then, we've created Paradis, Paradis Imperial, uh, all all other qualities. And I must say I'm very keen on the Paradis Imperial, which is an amazing selection of cognacs done by the master blender and his team. But uh, the XO is, is of course, a wonderful cognac which uh, we drink uh, on its own or on the rocks, uh, depending on the season.
2: (laughs) Mm. And um, so, is there a a designation of how old it must be before it can be bombarded? Well, legally, the
3: XO XO should be over six years old. But, I mean, uh, Hennessy's XO is between 10 to 30 years old. And uh, in fact, well, that's a tradition. We have Émile uh, Filiou, the blender of Maurice First, did it like that, and his great-grandson, Jan, uh, still does it like that. That's the way things should be done for us. So our Hennessy Exo is probably a little bit older than the others.
2: Mm. Interesting. Uh, well... Uh, being the snob that I am, that's the only kind I really like. I, <laughs> I just because I don't drink much of it, and I just drink a little bit, and usually like you know uh, after the after dinner or something. So yeah, yeah so yeah. if I'm going to drink it, I want it to be you know High. excellent and smooth yeah, and very absolutely. you know very warm and very good. Um, I'm going to bring in um, our other guest, Kara Newman. Kara is editor the the spirits editor for Wine Enthusiast Magazine and author of several very good cocktail books um uh, cocktails for a crowd and and her newest one as i said shakes stir, sip and what was the the first one was a spicy spice and ice spice and ice yes mm-hmm. you're on the show for that i see how do i forget
0: <laughs> friend a, a friend
2: and fellow member of the culinary historians of new york and i welcome her so Kara, i want to ask you as as a cocktail spirits um maven writer and uh and uh Researcher, when you use cognac in a cocktail, you wouldn't go to use you wouldn't go to an XO um, unless your budget is unlimited. But when what would you use to to mix in a cocktail?
4: I'd probably go with a, a VS. I mean, I'd probably go with something that's affordable um, or a VSOP. I think that's also lovely for for cocktails and XO. That would be very decadent uh,
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: I, I wouldn't say no to one, but um it wouldn't be my first choice no
2: mm-hmm. and are there many um, cocktails in your in your repertoire that really involve cognacs
4: um well there's the the sidecar the brandy sidecar right. um, there's turn, but I don't think that's an excellent equal parts cocktail and you know right and, now with we'll my get book. To, then we'll
2: get to that one right yeah, yeah.
4: but um I mean there's also. It wouldn't be my my favorite, but there's also the corpse survivor number no. one and that's made with um, a trio of of French spirits I mean that one is um, Calvados and cognac and um, and vermouth usually a, a French vermouth um, and that one you know it's okay mm. I prefer the corpse survivor number no. two with gin but corpse mm. survivor number no. one is is a okay for a, a brandy go to go-to. so um
2: we heard of course that the you know the the brandy or which was the cognac VS. I mean the the one that was drunk with in by the by the sailors in the ship <laughs> mixed with water. Um, is are there, is there still quite a call for for cognac and water? Well, you said cognac on on the rocks, so that's um, yeah, that's the same thing. Soda. Yeah, cognac
3: and soda. But I, if I may add, I'm like you. I would uh, do the cocktail with VS and uh, VSOP. Uh, you are perfectly. Right. Uh, maybe I still say Exo so on the rocks, it's not a cocktail, but that's a wonderful drink. Yeah. Uh, however, in 1850, or whatever, when the first sort of cocktail recipes were written, most of the cocktails were made or well, with cognac or with rum. There was no other spirit to mm. make cocktail. Well, that's and mint julep, the famous mint julep, which is. All of that were made with cognac. Maybe it was not exo, I agree. But it was. It's, it's, it's a great. It's a great drink yeah. for a cocktail. Interesting. And and just... I love cocktail, and you have great mixologists in America.
2: Indeed, we do. We do. Well, we're going to get back to more of these drinks and equal parts when we come back after a brief break. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified program at certified.ny.gov.
2: and Maurice Hi, we're back and our friend Maurice Hennessy has left us a, a busy schedule flying back to France and on to other places to educate people about cognac. Oh, a job I think I would like, but <laughs> sounds like great fun. But what what a what a great historian too having it all right there in the family helps, I would imagine. So I am Still talking with my friend and Spirits writer and um, author, Cara Newman. And again, I'm going to repeat it. Cara is the author of um, two previous cock books, Spice and Ice and Cocktails for a Crowd. And she also wrote The Secret Financial Life of Food, which we talked about years ago on the show here. Um, Her latest book, Shake, Stir, and Sip, Effortless Cocktails Made in Equal Parts. You know, it's like... Is this a big revelation, or is this sort of like something that, um, what's his name, Jerry Thomas had introduced years ago?
4: Well, it's a it was a revelation to me, but it's a, a very old format. I mean, it's been around for for a really long time. Um, I'm certainly not the, the first one to discover them or to, to work with them, but I, I guess I'm the first to identify it as a format to use at home and to compile it into a, a collection
2: so you've sort of lifted the veil on on all those secrets behind the bar that bartenders don't want to tell people right
4: in theory no. in theory um Let get our microphones
2: adjusted here so we can yeah
4: that's, no that's good you're good there okay awesome um, but yeah they've been around forever i mean some of the oldest cocktails around i mean from the 1800s are equal parts drinks we just didn't think of them that way
2: the best way is the equal parts on some of on some cocktails right
4: Right, it's amazing how many classic cocktails are equal parts. I mean, the Negroni, the Bamboo, the the Corpse Survivor we were just talking about earlier. Um, now I mean, you brought a sample. I can't.
2: I can't wait. You brought a sample <laughs> of the Bamboo. You just mentioned the Bamboo. Tell, what is the Bamboo?
4: Okay, that And one, I'm, I'm going to pour a little taste. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, it's equal parts sherry and dry vermouth. And so it's just it's just two. Two right, parts. This right. Is true, You exactly. have two, three, four, and five, five equal and more, parts? five and more. Okay, there aren't that many Listen. more. I, I was okay. kind of hoping I'd find some crazy six parts, seven parts. <laughs> Didn't find a whole lot of those. That well, then by
2: then you're following a, a detailed recipe. I mean, equal <laughs> yeah. parts. I think of as something like you know uh, three as a max, but you've got four and five. A lot of four and five in there. The book is is wonderful. I have to say, it's beautiful. And thank you. What a what. A crash it made on the on the drink book market. You ran out. They they ran out of the first printing. It just came it out last I, week.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, there was an article that ran in the the New York Times, right. and it sold out within not even the first week of. And
2: and I'm going to take a picture of you with it because it's a, a little. We're talking. We're not talking about a big drink book, folks. This is like something you could you could kind of keep nicely tucked away in your bar area or your counter where you mix drinks or a bartender could have it behind the counter it's it it's not a huge volume it's small in scale both in height and width and and you don't have i mean it's not that many pages and it's just it's perfect it's, it's a
4: odd. thank you for saying it's a tight <laughs> little Little book by by design, and the photos by John Lee are just amazing. They are
2: beautiful. They, yeah. It makes you want to grab that glass. You can feel the the, the coldness of the glass. And, oh, I love know. that. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's terrific. Um, all right, so I'm I'm going to sip this bamboo cocktail, and this is a two parter, right? It equal is. parts, again,
4: equal parts sherry and and vermouth. Right. So it sort of feels a like, white vermouth. Right. I think I used right. blanc for this just because that was what I. What I had, so it has like a little bit and of And what kind of sherry? Um, it's Manzanilla.
2: So you can um, it's you can alter the, the brands anywhere. Right, it
4: works really well with Fino sherry. Um, it works very well with anything that's a little lighter, a little brinier. Now, and usually it's served in a coupe glass, so it kind of has a martini feel to and it. And
2: yet it doesn't have that, doesn't... Have that power of a martini that you know. I, I'm sorry, I'm just not a martini drink. I get a little cognac after dinner, yes, but I can't drink those powerful things. They I'm just a fan
4: of... of low alcohol drinks. Yeah. these are sessionable, yeah.
2: and and not only that, but it actually has some taste. It's just not you know this alcohol burn. You know, it's it's really really quite good.
4: It also has bitters, also in equal parts. Oh, it, oh, it does.
2: All right, it's equal so that parts, was Ango and an orange bitters. All right. So that was something that I always. It's a that's one of those. Um, I guess, bartender secrets that you have to know when to use the bitters and what kind of bitters and how, right? You I'm know?
4: finding so many are using these, they call it house bitters, and they don't tell you what it is, but it's almost always equal parts Angostura and orange bitters. Yeah. They do that at the Nomad. Oh, psh,
2: all right. <laughs> um, and it's it, I, I, I can see why, though, because somehow that the oil, the orange oil, you know, it's a little the flavor complex. comes up. It does. It, yeah. it is. And yet, you know, it, it kind of mixes with the floral content of a lot of those um, uh, spirits and yet doesn't overpower it, but gives a little aromatic.
4: Yeah, you get like a little hit of spice, you know? a little hit of botanical. It's, it's a nice mix. So we're talking about some old classic cocktails here, right? Absolutely.
2: Um, we can start out with one of my favorites. Now, yes, I do drink heavier ones rather than this, this nice little vermouth and, and, uh, sherry. Um, one of my favorites, all time favorites. And I think maybe I was the, f- one of the first that I know in my group, but who just adored it, having lived in Italy for a long time is of course the Negroni.
4: Oh, a favorite. All right. I know
2: it has a wonderful, colorful history. Tell me about the Negroni.
4: Okay. The Negroni gets its start in, in Italy, of course. Um, this goes back to, uh, to Count Negroni. There was actually a Count Negroni who gives his, his name. Um, he Oh, it's a colorful story. He lived in America for a time, uh, spent some time as a rodeo clown. <laughs> I know, I know. There's, there's, there's more to that. I, I think I need to dig into that. But uh, the point is that you know he went to America and developed a, a taste um, before Prohibition came in for, for the stronger spirits, and then returned home to, to Italy. And there, there's a drink called the Americano, which is right. uh, Campari and, and soda water and Vermouth and. He, it's always listed on the back of that bottle of
2: Campari. You know, that was oh, sure. <laughs> the
4: standard drink listed there. I'm sure. And uh, and as a, a lover of, of stronger spirits, he requested that gin be swapped in. And that created the, the Negroni, which is just Campari, gin, sweet vermouth. And a lot of the time it's, it's topped up with a bit of soda water.
2: Mm, interesting. And it's interesting because I'm, I am going to, to, next time I decide I... Can have one. I will try that equal parts. I never make it in equal parts. Be- I I love Campari. I'll just drink you know Campari on its own. So I'm always heavy on the Campari and then really light on the on the gin, um, and and then the sweet vermouth to taste. Um, I mean, and, it doesn't have to be equal
4: parts, but but yeah, I is but the I think
2: but I think having the classics. I know, and and that's probably what has. Um, change the taste for me when I'll go into a bar or restaurant and order one before dinner and it'll be, I'll say, hmm, this is a little different than what I'm,
4: you know, what when I mix it. And then I realize that it's, the, the um, proportions are different. There's so many variations on it now, too. I mean, even if you don't love equal parts or you don't love Campari, uh, there are just so many variations. It really had, um, I mean, the original was created in the 20s, but We've had such a renaissance in the past 10 years. Um, A bartender named Gaz Regan really helped repopularize the the Negroni Um, circa, let's say, 2006, 2007. He self-published a book called The Negroni, and it really just set off this explosion in the bartending community you're
2: right it's amazing and and it seems to be like well maybe not now there's probably a new one today <laughs> because time things change so quickly but it was the hot drink of the past few years
4: for sure yeah and it's such a beautiful red color you can't help but spot it going across the room you see one you want yeah, one a nice
2: twist of orange in it and oh, you know, they're, nice they're and beautiful. cold yeah, yeah tell me what are so the count certainly uh, earned his his reputation then with the drink and if he only knew how popular it is once again
4: he'd probably love it yeah
2: (laughs) what are some of the other classics that have have history but now and then i wonder too with drinks in particular you know how much of it is you know is myth and folklore and how much is actual history um are there any you can think of that really do have a legacy
4: well it can be a little hard sometimes to put a precise date or a precise person to certain drinks because the nature of unfortunately for better or worse the nature of booze history is you have a lot of people who imbibed a little too much <laughs> and sometimes it gets a little hazy That
2: urban legends are created <laughs>
4: <sighs> yeah 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 um, but I think the last word is another drink that has a lot of history behind it and again started you know long time ago started before prohibition um it's an american drink that goes back to detroit to the detroit athletic club um and it's attributed to um depending on you see here i go sort of making things a little fuzzy depending on who you talk to the person who created his name was either frank Farrell or frank fogarty i think i'm leaning in the, the Farrell camp these days <laughs> uh, but what's certain about him is that he was a dublin-born bartender and a vaudevillian and he was known for um for always having the last word he liked to talk he he was apparently quite the character Hmm. and but he was the one who devised the the last word which is um, and that's
2: the name of the drink
4: it is the last word and it's a wonderful drink it has only four parts to it it's uh gin green chartreuse uh lime and maraschino liqueur is the the final one. Yeah. And it's it's strong. It's a real bracing yeah. you know, pick me up. And kind when of was this that he did this? That's I believe nineteen fifteen. Nineteen fifteen. At the Detroit Athletic Club. Right. And then that was stranger one stranger
2: <laughs> things have happened, I'm sure. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but then you have prohibition and yeah. it just sort of sweeps a lot of it under the rug, and no one really heard about it again until the you know, this the second cocktail revolution, and there's a bartender in Seattle, Murray Stenson. Um, who at the time was working at the Zigzag? I think we're about 2007, maybe, maybe it's even earlier. Um, no, 2004. And he rediscovered the last word in a, a book um, called Bottoms Up. It was, I believe, a 1962 era book. And he put it on his menu and it just spread like wildfire. Hmm. And it's, it's also one of those that has, I mean, dozens and dozens of variations. And some people will just swap out one component. Some people will swap out all components. Actually, one of the most successful variations is called the paper plane, and that was created. Oh, so the
2: variations also have other names. It's mm-hmm. not just a variation on the last word.
4: Sometimes it's it's the last word, like a subtle twist. Penultimate. Yeah, I'm sure there must be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and what it, what's in it? What was in the original again? It, gin, green chartreuse, lime. And maraschino, and so LaCour. it's a little greenish in in hue, and um, yeah, very. It's a, it's strong, it's bracing, but you know, it's it's technically a, a sour because it has the citrus in it.
2: So we have a clown, <laughs> a, a rodeo clown, <laughs> a vaudevillian, are, any other characters who <laughs> who invented some of these you know historic,
4: classic drinks. Cocktail history has some some real entertaining characters <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Oh goodness. Um, I'm not sure that the others are just so wild and off the top of my head. I mean, if you want to talk about the the bamboo, I mean, that's even older than the others. I mean, that one goes back to 1890, and that one was created in Japan, of all places. Um, And hence the name bamboo, right? Right, in in Yokohama to serve to visiting dignitaries. You know, it seems to me, and and now
2: I think of Sherry and and you, you know, uh, being a very civil, very, almost like a. in a way, a lady's drink, too. But it's a very gentle, it's a very gentle drink. Interesting. And that, I think it's
4: very graceful.
2: Yeah, graceful. That's a good word. Graceful. And it
4: blends really well with other ingredients, and bartenders love it. I mean, that's why it's all over these days. It's become a very popular cocktail ingredient.
2: Well, I know what I'm ordering next time. It's, I mean, <laughs> As you say, it's low in alcohol. It has a very soft um, in, and graceful, yeah, graceful taste and finish, and it's nice. Um, what in your... Estimation is really one of the, or two. You could I'll give you two. Uh, in, in terms of historic cocktails, the most classic of the cocktails, the martini, hands down, the martini, hands down. Okay, and of course now we've got. Uh, they're not even martinis. You can't fool me. I mean, we've got, mart things called being called martinis that you know, don't bear any resemblance to the original, but. Um, The original was actually a two-equal-part drink, was it not?
4: It started off a lot sweeter. I'm not sure that it was always equal parts, but it was definitely um, a lot more vermouth. Compared to what we do now, where it compared
2: to what James Bond would
4: <laughs> would say. Right? Yeah, it wasn't vodka, and it wasn't just you know wave the bottle of vermouth over the over right. the glass and, and
2: or use a spritzer and just you know oh <laughs> the spray atomizers the top, right.
4: oh yeah. Um, yeah no they were definitely definitely sweeter um, often it was uh, sweet vermouth in oh. earlier iterations um, I know you're familiar with the Martinez. And yes. That was yes that was also um, Sweeter and used a sweeter type of, of gin, um, Old Tom gin,
2: and that's coming. That's becoming popular once again too. The Martinez, a lot of I restaurants are putting it, Yeah, a lot of um, restaurants putting that on their their menus, and that has the addition of the sweet vermouth. Um,
4: I think that also is a touch of maraschino and an Old Tom gin. Hmm. Maybe I'm missing another ingredient in there, but I think those are the the building blocks.
2: And you know the classic the the cocktails. And then some of the classics that use the heavier spirits, the you know like the old fashions and the sidecar and the and the manhattans, you know, those are. I think of those as you know those are the brown cocktails that <laughs> that are, that are um, a little stronger, I, or I guess in taste maybe.
4: Yeah, a lot of the time they have you know more spirit mm-hmm. content. Um, I do feel like um, there's definitely a misperception that the the darker spirits are, are stronger than the than the white spirits. It's it's not necessarily true.
2: No, no, definitely not. I
4: mean, <laughs> but it's a matter of taste.
2: Yeah. I mean if you think of vodka as being like, you know, almost like you know, this ethyl alcohol that
4: goes to your head, right? They can away. all be the same. Yeah. Same uh, ABV levels, but I'm getting too geeky about that.
2: No, no, no. That's I, I like that, and so do my listeners. <laughs> you know, okay. The,
4: yeah, the nerdier
2: you can get into the oh, you know, I can do that into the into the details. So we're talking about the go again the alcohol content or the you said you called it the ABV
4: alcohol by volume alcohol by volume ABV. Okay, a new uh, terminology. Just, yeah, just a, a technical way of, of establishing how much alcohol is in a particular. Spirit.
2: Um, you know, it's interesting that the cocktail uh, culture has had such a, a renaissance. And there are... I notice that you refer in your writing, and there are... Of course, there's a radio show here on the Heritage Radio Network um, that you appeared on last week. The term, and there are, are establish, establishments calling themselves the speakeasy. Speakeasy being, of course, you know, came into being during uh, Prohibition when it's sort of that was, you know, not, they weren't known, they weren't supposed to be known, no signs, no, no advertising, you're sort of word of mouth and, you you know, walk in and talk quietly, you'll be, and you'll be admitted. Um, Does, is, is that really now a designation of, of, of a, an establishment that serves more creative and classic cocktails as opposed to just your bar, you know, like, you know.
4: There are so many different subcategories, subcategorizations of bars. I mean, you can start with the the dive bar where everything is very laid back and right. probably beer or whatever you can point to on the back bar is right. your, <laughs> your drink of choice right up to, well, I'm hesitating because what we might have called a, a speakeasy, I'm saying this with air quotes, a speakeasy, um, five, six, ten years ago. Uh, probably now has kind of morphed into being more of the craft cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're not, we've kind of had a, a backlash against these very pretentious speakeasies where you had the, the bartenders emulating um, the, the pre prohibition styles, you know, with the, the waxed mustaches. The Jerry and Thomas that.
2: look, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
4: And now it's gotten a bit more casual, but at the same time, there's been this democratization of cocktails and. Restaurants have far better cocktails than they they did just a few years ago. Um, there's a much broader swath of, of bars across the country with really excellent high-end um, cocktails. I mean, you really have to work hard these days to get a bad drink, which mm-hmm. is a nice problem to have. Yeah, indeed. Um, then, and so I I wondered, you know, if that was your
2: word was chosen carefully when you, um, I, I guess I in one of the paragraphs you. Read that you had mentioned um, something being served in a speakeasy and
4: like a modern if, day speakeasy. If that was
2: if that was intentional that you use um, the term speakeasy as opposed to just your local bar.
4: <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I was probably trying to indicate it's. The, I wouldn't walk into a dive bar, for example, and ask for a last word. I mean, if they had green sh- chartreuse at all, I'd probably be laughed right out of the bar. Yeah. But I was probably trying to point to some place where you would walk in and, and likely find a last word. On the menu,
2: and of course, green chartreuse might have been in your parents' cabinet back in the you know 40s or 50s, (laughs) but then it fell out of favor. It's true a lot of those a lot of those liqueurs and um, that were used to mix drinks sort of fell out of. Out of fashion, I guess it was. Not out of favor, but out of fashion.
4: I'm so glad so many of them are back.
2: Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And not only that, but what about the glassware? Because so many of these are so beautiful, and they're served in these dainty coupes and, and small... You know, we're talking about a drink that is tasted, not gulped. And you have to have the right glassware.
4: The shape I'm in love with now is the Nick and Nora glass.
2: You have a picture of that in your book, and I, I that was a new one for me. Describe it.
4: It's... I think a relatively new addition, uh, re addition, they're they're great. They they function like coupe glasses. That same sort of saucer or martini little, bowl, little tiny bowl, right? Yeah. It's it's for a drink that's not served with ice. It's a strained drink, but yeah, but it's a smaller, narrower bowl. It's very elegant looking. You could easily imagine, you know, Myrna Loy holding <laughs> holding this Nicanora glass with you know a much smaller portion of of martini or, or whatever so you know hence the the Nick and Nora glass named after the yeah. the 1930s film uh, characters back to an characters.
2: elegant time of sipping an elegant graceful cocktail and not sloshing down some you know something that that gets the job done but Tasting, actually tasting the variations of the flavors and the, the aromatics. Yeah. Love that. Well, this book is is really very cool. And but you always present um, great ideas in your writings. And your writings, I have to say, you've, your writings have appeared in everything from. Uh, New York Times to uh, the Sommelier Journal to the San Francisco Chronicle and everything in between. Edible, Gotham, Slate. Kara, it's always a pleasure and I look forward to your next work of art. Thank you. And thanks for joining me on A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.